Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today we're going to be in Esther, primarily in chapter 3. So let me, let me set up some things very quickly, and I want to give you, actually, if you've not been following along, we're, we're working our way through Esther, and the reason that we're doing that is intentionally focused on the timing of this because it's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God, and, and yet he is very obvious if you know that he is, it's very clear throughout the book that he is involved, though he is incredibly silent. And so I, I just kind of sense that, that we kind of live in that same world. It's like, you know, if God is and God wants and God directs, then shouldn't God speak? Shouldn't we be hearing him? At least those who claim him and claim to know him, shouldn't we be hearing him and shouldn't he be intervening for us? And when we don't experience that intervention, when we have to experience difficulty and chaos and confusion and division and all of those things, then we kind of start shaking a little bit, wondering, does God not love us? Does God not care? Is God not real? What's, you know, what's the issue? And so we're just working through Esther and learning how believers, people who trust in God, who follow him, are to live in a pagan world when God appears to be silent. And I think, I think Esther has a lot to say to us about that. And so, uh, what, what we've seen so far, and I'm not going to catch us all the way up, but, you know, Ahasuerus uh, is, has had this beauty pageant. He's brought in all of the beauties from around the empire, and he's had them compete. And the most beautiful one is going to replace his uh, banished queen because she failed to uh, do his bidding. Uh, and I'm only giving us the high spots that will fall in line with today's Messy. So there's a lot uh, going on here, but we begin to realize that this passage, one of the things that the end of chapter two does is it shows us what happens when a culture chooses to judge uh, value based on appearances, based upon pleasure, based upon comforts. And, and that's what we're all prone to do. So it would make sense that as a culture, we would begin to do what comes naturally or comfortable or what brings us some sort of satisfaction. When we judge principles and decision-making based on the external things that the world has to offer, it looks just like Persia. People, as we've learned from Vashti, people become replaceable because all the king was looking for was beauty, but not just for himself, but how that would make him appear to everyone else. I would ask you this, but I know that there's no way you could know how beautiful was Xerxes. You don't know. Doesn't matter. He doesn't care how beautiful he is. He only cares what beauty he's surrounded with, right? It's very shallow and it's very external, focused on external things. Now listen, one of the things that, and I'm going to get into just a, just a little bit of good advice, especially for, for young people, uh, that, that I feel like our modern day Persia is, man, we're really tempted to believe this lie. 
And that is that when it comes to, you know, external beauty or whatever it is, and, and there's also this now, this fear of missing out, we'll talk about that in a, in a moment too, is there's this reluctance to have any level of commitment, especially when it comes to people, because Hollywood, the Hallmark Channel, and by the way, guys, you better back me up on this. I know that there's people in your house that like the Hallmark Channel, maybe, but it's, it's of the devil, and I'm going to tell you why. All right, I'm going to tell you why. Here it comes. This is the world's story. And that is that there's, there is one person out there that will bring me my fullest satisfaction. That one person that I've been looking for all my life, finally, my one true love, my soulmate. It's garbage. It's rubbish. It does not exist. It is a lie straight from the pit of hell. All right? Because that relationship was never intended to satisfy you anyway. That's never going to be your fulfillment. Jesus Christ created us so that he alone could be that satisfaction and that contentment. That's why he is our groom and we are his bride. Now, if you happen to think that now that I'm married, oh, you know what? I really like that person. Maybe they're my soulmate. Immediately, you are disinterested in this person that you've already made a commitment to. Now, you're not going to say it out loud. But there's levels of discontent. It starts breeding. It starts creating division. You start arguing and yelling about things that don't really matter if you were committed to each other. But it's like, you know what? What if I got married too soon? What, what if I made the wrong decision and that person is still out there? Well, maybe mine will die soon and I'll be able to. I mean, honestly, this is, this is scary for us. So we cannot believe this lie. The advice that the scriptures give us is this very clearly is that we love the one we're married to. We respect the one we're married to. Listen, this was the admonition to the Corinthian church, to the church at Ephesus who were even married to unbelievers, Christians who had now become Christians who were still married to unbelievers. And Paul said, you better stay where you are because God can give you a love. God can give you a love. But you have to set your heart on it. And wherever your heart is set, that's the thing you'll begin to treasure. So if your heart is set outside of that, I'm just trying to give Xerxes some good advice because the rest of the book, it's just a lot of ink that could have been saved if he would have just understood this. And there's a lot of heartache and a lot of pain that could have been, under, that could have been uh, not had to go through. And again, I'm not beating anybody up. I'm just saying, for those of you who may be afraid that, uh-oh, I've messed up, God can give us a heart for those things that he's commanded us to be in. And we should say amen to that. All right, so where in the world did we get there? Still no amens. That's okay. Hey, it, I don't need an amen for it to be true. I just want some, uh, I just need to know I'm not the only one in the room. Maybe the rain's too loud on the roof and you can't hear me. Maybe turn me up a little bit. I'm just kidding. That's not a thing. So again, so we, we got to make sure that doing the right thing, because what, what, what the, when, when Ahasuerus is your king, there's going to be a lot of lies in the kingdom. And that's going to be one of them. And it's going to make commitment, and, and focusing on making the right decisions are going to become an incredibly difficult thing to continue in. So when the self, when yourself becomes king, we're not going to commit because we're always looking. 
We're always looking for, is there a better offer? Is there a better option? What, what if something else comes up? I want to be free to be able to do the thing I want, not the thing I said yes to. And I think I just realized why there's no amens. Everybody's afraid because that hits every one of us. Who has not said they would do something only to have a better offer and regret your first commitment? Every one of us. Somebody says, hey, do you want to do something? Yes. And then somebody cooler asks you to do something. It's like, can the kids get sick or something? Is there some way that we could make an excuse not to do this thing because we had a better offer? Listen, we cannot be a, key, a people that keep waiting for a better offer. Our better offer is obedience in Jesus Christ. And he will give us a heart to everything we say yes to. There you go. That's good. I'll take that one. So, so we, live, we, live, we, we start living very loosely. We start, we start living in the idea of what, what is right in our own eyes, those, those sorts of things. And so no, here, here's, here's what I would say to you. And, and, and Xerxes is about to prove, Ahasuerus is about to prove this to us. No matter who you are, what you do, there, there, it will never, if this is the lie you believe, it will never be enough. They'll always be better. They'll always be more beautiful. They'll always be more sensitive. They'll always be a promise of more money, bigger, better, brighter, all of those sorts of things. They're always going to be out there. Here's how I know. History tells us that there was somewhere between 400 and 1,000 of these most beautiful virgin girls in the entire kingdom that Ahasuerus said, bring them to me. I want to evaluate them. Oh, they are, what are they? The most beautiful. There are no more beautiful women in the empire than these. And they need at least a year to clean themselves up a little bit. You see that? They, no one surpasses them. But they're not good enough. They can, we can do better. We can do better. And you know what? Tomorrow on that 365th day when they've put that final makeup on and they have their one night with the king, tomorrow they've got to put their makeup back on. And they've got to get their hair done again. It's never, ever enough. It's a lie. It's because we're trying to find satisfaction in the external things that the world offers instead of finding our satisfaction and identity in Jesus Christ. You see, there's another way to live, and that's to place your hope in a God who already said yes to you, who already turned his face towards you, who already said you have access to the throne room anytime. In fact, he's not hiring eunuchs to make his bride beautiful. Our God is making us beautiful himself with his righteousness. That's always a better king. Don't believe anything less than that. You will lose your identity, and when you lose it on the, on the, on the small things, You'll start losing it in every external thing in your life. You'll start forgetting who you are everywhere you go. The world makes lots of promises, and listen to this. The world is a liar. That's all it knows how to do. It does not know how to keep promises. All right. So Ahasuerus, the world's king, is looking for beauty. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for the ones who can't help themselves. I came for the ones who don't qualify for the pageant. That's who I want to spend my time with. All right, let's, let's shift gears now. So I want you to ask yourself this. And I don't, again, I don't, want this to, I don't want it to be judgmental because I think it's good, I think it's good advice. Uh, I think it's biblical truth. I think it's reason that the story is actually in the Scripture. But I want us to ask ourselves, when it comes to the day-to-day, what are we drawn to? What are we drawn to? 
I mean, what catches our eye? And maybe this is a more telling, a hazardous question, is what am I trying to attract to myself? What am I doing in my life to attract whatever it is? What am I hoping will be drawn to me? And that's where you'll find your biggest temptations to compromise which king you're willing to follow. So how do you learn to redefine beauty? Because that is easy for a man on a stage to say. But I think we have to learn to see it differently. If Jesus is the definition of beauty, if he's the thing we look to and say he is beautiful, he is the epitome of goodness and righteousness and godliness and holiness, then when we start looking with our eyes, that's what we have to start looking for, is Jesus in everything. I've got to start looking for Jesus in you. And when I can start seeing the fruit of the Spirit coming out of you, I'm drawn to that. And, and there may be some that you see the potential for the fruit of the Spirit, the potential of the Jesus life. We should be drawn to that so that we could draw that out of people. So now all of a sudden, no matter where people are on the spectrum, we can be patient, we can be loving, we can be compassionate because we're looking for Jesus in people. We're looking for Jesus in people. Or we're looking for how can we place Jesus in people. It begins to change the way we see beauty and and opportunity and relationship. And now all of a sudden, everything we do becomes kingdom-based instead of this world-based. All right, let's look at verse, um, the end of verse 15 of of Esther chapter 2, and then we'll, I'm just going to read it, make some comments because it kind of teaches itself. There's a couple things in here that I want to just point out, though. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. Now, for those of you who know Ahasuerus, you know that really doesn't mean much. But it's not that he loved Esther It's that he loved Esther more than he loved anybody else. Now, I don't know how much he loved everybody else, but Esther's at the top. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. If this were written today, it would say he gave her the red rose, right? Then the king gave a great feast, man, this guy, for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes. What in the world kind of politician is this? To the provinces, and he gave gifts with royal generosity. I honestly think he's excited. What kind of king would say, you know what? I just feel incredibly generous. Don't pay your taxes for a period of time, and I'm going to give you some celebratory gifts to remember this occasion. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. This this is where the plot kind of thickens. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold or the gateway of the door, 
they had pretty, pretty close clearance. Well, they became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. I think the reason that we know this story is because we want to see that really Ahasuerus has no qualms with putting people in the noose. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. That's not the Chronicles of the Hebrews. That's the Chronicles of the Persians. And in the presence of the king. Verse, or chapter 3. After these things, King Hahasuerus... Now, one of the things that they would do customarily is when they wanted to show favor to someone, they would give them lots of gifts and lots of notoriety and write papers and books about them so that people would know, hey, this is a special person in the kingdom. So at this point in the story, what we would expect to find is that, that uh, Mordecai is about to get some special favor. Yes, his story is recorded, but look at this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted... Dun, 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 First time we hear about this guy, new character, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha. And he advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. He didn't just promote him, he demoted everybody else and said, when this guy walks by, you better be on your knees. Mordecai did not bow down, did not pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, for he told them that he was a Jew. Finally. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast uh, lots, dice, before Haman day after day. And that doesn't mean that every day they were doing it. It means that they kept rolling the dice until they got the number they wanted, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then king Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people, I don't know why he didn't say Jews, but he's trying to conceal the matter. There's a certain people abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasures. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And, he, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do as it seems good to you." 
Then the king's scribes summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to Haman had uh, commanded, was written to the king's satraps, to the governors, over all the provinces, to all the people, officials of all the people, to province in its own script, its own language, every people in its own language, and it was written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, that's the capital, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, I'm just going to, I know it's a long passage to read together, but it, but it being the narrative, uh, it's important. I, the word of God speaks for itself a lot better than my commentary, so I don't want to ever miss that. But you try to remember something for those of you who are not, not fully caught up here. Esther is the king's wife, and she is a Jewish orphan. Now, Mordecai overhears a plot where they're going to try to king to, uh, kill uh, two of the uh, eunuchs, the guards, are going to try to kill the king. And they have access to him because they are very, their, their post is very close to him. Mordecai finds out of that, tells Esther, I think he's looking for some extra favor here. He tells Esther, hey, the king's in, uh, in uh, a jeopardy here. And Esther, in fact, tells the king this and even says, Mordecai is the one who told me. He's worthy of special privileges here. But he gets his story told but Mordecai gets looked over. Now, when chapter 3 begins, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, not the direction we saw that go. Now, here's something that the Scripture tells us. It just doesn't tell us plainly here. So Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, has advanced him. And he's set his throne above all the officials who are with him. He becomes what we would call the prime minister of Persia. And any Jew that knew or read what this edict was promising would understand the irony very, very quickly. Now, I'm going to give us a really quick history lesson, okay? This is a very significant thing because the Agagites our descendants. We've, we've picked them up pretty quickly in Genesis chapter 36. There are, I won't go into all of it, but that's where we meet uh, Amalek. And, and he is the pretty prominent uh, son of uh, Esau. He's Esau's grandson. And he becomes pretty, a pretty prominent, in fact, he creates his own clan. The clan becomes a nation. The nation becomes a people. And they become a thorn in the side of Israel. Do you want to know why? Jacob and Esau, you remember the birthright story? They hated each other. And part of this boils down to who gets the promised land? Who gets the promises of Abraham? Well, Esau should have. Jacob stole it. And so there's this great fighting between all of the Canaanites, mostly of which came out of Esau, and Jacob, little Israel, and his 12 sons and their tribes. 
Now, this is very important because this argument goes back 1,100 years when we first meet Amalek. Hated Israel. Now, later, 500 years ago if in uh, Esther, there was another story about another king. In fact, it's Israel's first king. Israel's first king was King Saul. He wasn't God's king. He was the people's king. Terrible guy. Didn't turn out very well. But we find out in uh, 1 Samuel that, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, I believe it is, it tells us that Saul was the son of, anybody know? Kish. I, I, I thought you might know that. Kish. Now this is important. Because when you look at Mordecai's genealogy that we've already seen, there's three men listed there. Jair, Shimei, and Kish. Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. Haman is a descendant of Esau. See it? It gets worse. King Saul, one of the first things that God told Samuel to tell King Saul was the Amalekites are terrible people. In fact, it was the Amalekites when Israel was coming out of Egypt into the promised land. It was the Amalekites that kept flanking them and destroying them, killing off all of their weak and old people. And God told Saul, now that you're set up and established in a kingdom, I want you personally to take all of your warriors and you go down to the Amalekites and I want you to kill every one of them that's alive and all of their livestock. I don't want anything to steal their hearts to be beating when you leave there. And what Saul did is he went and kept all the best things. He killed all the sick and all the weak. He even kept the king alive. And he kept the king as a favor so that he would have favor later. Oh, King Agag. And from the time that Amalek was born into this family that hated their cousins to King Agag, when Saul, the wicked king, preserved Agag's life. All right, here's another one. There's another verse of scripture when uh, King David is being assaulted by Absalom and Absalom's about to take the, the throne. There is a descendant there listed. His name's Shimei. I know you probably, you, for those of you who don't care about this, just somebody will punch you in a minute when we get back to it. But this Shimei guy is a guy who when, when David was fleeing for his life, the Bible says he picked up rocks and he started chunking rocks at David and saying, you overthrew King Saul and God is done with you, you murderous, no good on and on and on, right? You're finally getting yours. You should have never, ever taken the throne from my great-granddaddy. So you start looking at these genealogies. This isn't about Mordecai being a good Jew because he didn't want anybody to know it. In fact, Passover's about to take over. He's still in Persia, not Jerusalem. He didn't go back 70 years, 140 years ago with all of the others. There's lots of things. He told, he told Esther, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Haman is not a faithful Jew. Haman is a proud, arrogant descendant of King Saul who wants his land and his crown back. And this Agag, if, if Saul would have done what Agag 
if he would have done what God told him to do to Agag, I wouldn't be dealing with men like Haman now. And now Haman's the prime minister of Persia. I should be the prime minister of Persia. Bow to Haman. I'm the one that just saved the king's life. This isn't Haman being a good follower of God. This is Haman filled with jealousy and rage. Mordecai. Haman wants, just like every other descendant of Amalek, when he knows, when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, he says, my chance. I'm filled with fury. I want to kill, I want to put my hands around Mordecai's throat. But this is my chance to wipe them all out. Because he's filled with the enemy. He's following the wrong king. And by the way, this king I'm not talking about is Ahasuerus. This is the king of this world. This is the king from the very beginning. This is the king that's been trying to kill the seed of the woman born from Eve since the very beginning. When you go back to Nebuchadnezzar, why is Nebuchadnezzar trying to kill all the Jewish babies? Why does Herod try to kill all the Jewish babies? Over and over you have different pagan kings trying to destroy all of the Jewish babies. Why? To wipe out the seed that they don't even know about. This is a satanic plot. This is the same reason Haman is about to try to kill all of the Jews now. Because Satan knows when you follow the king of this world, he is trying to destroy God's promises. Because God's promises take longer to be fulfilled than Satan's lies. And I could stop right there and I think we all get it. Both of these men, Haman is not fighting for the king. There is no proof that Israel is defying the king's laws. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. And, and strangely enough, Ahasuerus doesn't even ask for the evidence. Here's what he says. Here, whatever. You're a great man. How quick did he relinquish his name, his character, his kingdom to a betrayer, a supplanter. So this story is a lot deeper than we realize that it is. It's, it's a story between God's people and Satan's people. God's promises and the world's lies. It's been going on from generation to generation to generation. And it always seems like Satan's lies sound a whole lot better than having to wait for a God when he's silent. So here's what I want, here's what I want our takeaway to be today. I want us to shift from seeing Ahasuerus as this great tyrant, wicked king, which he is. But all of a sudden, the one who looks like he has all of the control and all of the power, we realize... He just gives it away. He becomes the victim. I don't feel sorry for him, but he becomes the victim. And Haman becomes the lead character, the one that's been trying to pull all the strings for 1,100 years to wipe out God's promises. Now, here's what I want us to consider. When we follow King Ahasuerus, we become one with him, and we take on his values we take on his character. 
we start wanting what he wants. And when Satan comes with his little lies, his petty lies, how quick are we to take off that ability to make a decision and, and just relinquish the right to whatever those lies may be and say, whatever you, whatever you want, do whatever you want. Listen, by the way, this, this guy, Ahasuerus, Haman comes in and he says, you know what, if, if you will do this, these people hate you. They're not following you. They don't believe like we believe. Their laws are different. They're defi- they're, that's, that should be enough for a king. But here's what Haman says, and I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. And we would say, that sounds like a lot of silver. History tells us that during these days of King Xerxes, that the annual income of all of the families in all of the kingdoms combined in all of Persia, all the provinces, brought in usually around 15,000 talents. And Haman said, I'll give you a third of our nation's income. Over the course of a year, I'll give it all to you. Now, Haman must have some money. That's a lot of money. Hey, that's $248 billion that Haman said, I'll write you the check. And you know what Ahasuerus said? He didn't say which laws, which God, which people. He said, I could use some more gold couches. And we read that and we say, what an idiot. To believe such stupid lies and you don't even need it. Do you not understand? You have God's people to protect here. How quick they were to just throw the kingdom away for, to, for a bribe. But we find out Haman intends to, when he kills them, he's going to take all their stuff. That's where the money's coming from. Listen, I hope that you can see the spiritual analogy and allegory here. That that's exactly what happens. When we start believing the wrong king, we're going to fall for the wrong lies. But we're the ones who wear the ability to make our own choices. We're the ones who wear that. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us just to pray. What am I trying to attract to myself? And who am I trying to be? And I'm not talking about looks. I'm not talking about relationships. I'm talking about in life decision making what am I trying to appeal to and what appeals to me is it is it the king and his kingdom or is it the king and his kingdom who am I giving my ring to who am I giving my name to who am I giving my loyalty to and for those of you who've read Esther we know how it turns out we'll get to that later but I want I just want us this morning to understand the decision-making process here. This is where Mordecai draws the line. And it wasn't for the right reasons, but it'll turn out to begin a thinking process for him. And, uh, and that's, that's going to be good for the, for the people of God. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand with me, if you will. Why would you ever give someone as evil as Haman your signet ring? Why would you let anyone control you like that?
John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Ephesians chapter 4 says, walk then circumspectly. That word circumspectly comes from the same word we get circumference. It means to walk in a circle, to be very intentional in every direction, to see where that enemy may be so that you can know his lies. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time, for the days are evil. To this day, The devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, looking for that signet ring. He's not going to tell you that he's a lion. He's going to tell you that he's satisfaction, that he's comfortable, that he's safe. He's going to tell you that he's beautiful. He's going to promise power and place and possessions. And he's going to promise you everything. And I'm telling you, he is a liar. I know that there's a better king. He never lies. He doesn't make decisions based on jealousy or pride or arrogance. And every promise he makes lines up with truth. God is keeping us, keeping us his promise. I think about that, again, using Esther as an allegory. I think about the goal of Satan using Haman. Haman doesn't know he's being used too. But as Satan is trying to destroy the seed in the woman to prevent the birth of the Messiah himself, the, the fulfillment of every promise of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And is yes and amen. But if we, can, if we can stop the seed of the woman, we can stop the birth of the Savior. But listen, God in his incarnation has placed himself inside of every one of us. Every one of us. And, and what he's called us to do is to produce the life of Christ as we go. But if you keep giving your signet ring away, you keep letting our enemy devour the seed that's in you. And you're not producing the Messiah. We're not producing the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, we're believing the lies of Haman. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. And I, I, I pray that we would have the courage to be honest with ourselves and to recognize if we are truly seeking your kingdom first, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or if we're trying to just make ours if we're trying to create a a world that we can control or a world that we're willing to control us so that we'll fit in, so that we'll matter, so that we'll have influence based on how we'll look, how we'll appear, how comfortable we will be while neglecting all your promises, Lord, I, I pray that you would convict us. I pray that we would repent of that 
and that we would recognize that in you is real beauty. And we would gladly become one flesh with you. So Lord, we love you today and we thank you for proving and honoring. Even, even in, a, in a world like Persia, when you are silent, you are at work. And I thank you that in our world where you know, we would love to see displays of signs and wonders and proofs, but, but sometimes we live in a world where, where Christianity doesn't get its way. But Lord, we depend upon the promises of your word and we walk in the promises of your son. And we pray that while Satan's lies promise long-lasting satisfaction but have immediate consequences, your promises may take a while to come about and requires consistency. Lord, I pray that we would always choose your faithfulness. Satan's lies always revolve around how we feel. But Lord, you give us the freedom over our feelings and allow us to choose a better way and then give the grace so that our feelings follow our heart as our heart follows you. In fact, when we know Saul blunders the Agag moment, I'm reminded of what Samuel said is that you prefer obedience over sacrifice. Obedience over sacrifice. And Lord, so many times we try to sacrifice to, to appease our disobedience. Lord, help us to choose disobedience first. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We depend upon him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated for just a moment. Before we're dismissed, I want to want to remind you of something, and uh, we'll those of you who are willing to go eat, we'll walk make our way over there. But <clears throat> in Matthew chapter six, uh, Jesus they asked Jesus how to pray the disciples, and Jesus uh, gives them a model or a, maybe a formula for for what prayer looks like and the components of prayer. And then immediately, without any further questions, Jesus immediately goes into talking about fasting, which is a form of praying. And, and then Jesus also uh, shifts there to verse 19. And, and so I can't really separate verse 19 from Jesus' oratory about prayer and fasting. And Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, we're talking about in the book of Esther, 
values and adopt, what values are we going to adopt? And what Jesus teaches us in his ministry is that our, our values change in prayer. Not in truth. Truth is important to inform our praying, but our values change in prayer. It's in prayer and prayer alone that our treasure shifts. What we value, what we prize shifts. One of the things that we've been learning in my discipleship group is the passage in Matthew when Jesus is up on the mountain with the disciples and he, he looks over Jerusalem and it says that, that when he saw them, he was moved with compassion because he saw them as being sheep with no shepherd. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, the fields are white, ripe to harvest. The workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest send laborers. So it's, it's interesting to me that, that when Jesus was actively out, he saw them. His seeing them, what did he see? He saw them. They were at Walmart. They didn't know they were sheep without a shepherd. They were living life. They weren't biting their fingernails in misery. They were Jews living Jews. But Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd and it would broke him. And compassion means to see the need and to step into it. So when he saw them as helpless, harried and helpless, harassed, beaten, broken. Oh, they didn't know it. But they didn't have a savior, a shepherd to lean into. And Jesus' response wasn't to go down into the street and start preaching a sermon. Jesus said, you need to pray that God will send people to them. It was a fulfillment of what he said here in Matthew 6, which was that you, your heart needs to be where I tell you your heart should be. And when you put your heart there, that'll become your treasure. It's not you'll find out what's important to you based on your heart. It's that your heart goes first. And you can begin to treasure what Jesus treasures. You'll begin to have compassion on what Jesus has compassion on. So all of this has kind of manifested into this. we got to get out to where we can see people intentionally, where we can experience people. Because I'm telling you, we're going to have to believe Jesus. They are harassed and helpless, and they don't have a Savior that they're leaning into, and we do. And so what my encouragement is to us is we need to at least start by praying over homes. And I am certain that God will begin to give us a heart for the River Valley. He'll begin to give us a heart for our neighbors. And they'll become to be our treasures because we can see Jesus in them and we can see the potential of Jesus in them. And we'll begin to manifest the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhoods. And that's my prayer for our church is that we will begin to treasure what Jesus already treasures. This is why Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Not because your enemies need it. But you need to change how you feel about your enemies. You need to 
pray for those who use you, spitefully use you, use you on purpose, who manipulate, manipulate you. Why? Because my heart begins to change for those people and I begin to treasure those people. So the question really, and I'm not trying to guilt us into anything, really, maybe a little, <laughs> but I want us to begin to cultivate a compassion. I want us to recognize, learn how to listen, learn how to notice people and know how to move in just with the precision of the Spirit to be able to speak. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you are doing. We thank you that you give us clear direction. And, uh, and I just ask, Lord, that this morning you would help us to walk circumspectly, help us to redeem the time, help our hearts to shift away from trying to please the world and I pray that our hearts would shift to treasure what you treasure. And so we just ask your blessings on us today as we do this, as we teach our children what it looks like to love our neighbors and the nations. As we teach our neighbors how to love each other, how to invest and to care. As we become the church that is ancient. As we continue to experience the blessing and the favor that she has always experienced. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.